so having the conversation over time, mm-hmm. right, in a way that is you know, organized um, by organizers and advocates who understand um, what is at stake and what their message is, is something that shapes public meaning over time and makes new things politically possible. But it's not overnight, right? It's not from one election cycle to another. You usually have to look, I've found, over a decade, right, to see how um, public meaning changes, uh, because, um, you know, the way that people think about their lives and what's possible and how the world is takes time to shift, um, you know, and 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 you're not guaranteed the outcome that you want, of course, but it's important <laughs> yeah. to understand how the process works. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm here with Dr. Diva Woodley and uh, we're, today we're going to talk about how does public meaning shape politics and what does active citizenship look like? Dr. Woodley, glad to have you on. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Woodley is a professor at the New School for Social Research and she's interested in how democratic politics actually happens in the contemporary context. And part of the reason I wanted to have you on is uh, this line where you say um, that you approach us in a non-traditional way. And I think there's a lot of value in that, um, that whereas most political science focuses inquiry on institutions, choice and decision making, by contrast, you focus your attention on the ways that public meanings define the problems that the polity, that the citizens understand itself themselves to share as well the range of choices that we perceive to be before us and i think sometimes we get stuck Mm -hmm. in very binary modes of politics that help that hide very um important and uh simpler ways to solve problems and so uh really excited to have you on here and you know again thank you uh if you'd like to talk a little bit about uh, yourself how you got interested in this topic um would love to hear it Sure. Um, well, gosh, how did I get interested in the topic of um, civic participation and meaning making? I think it came out of um, my activism while, when I was in college, actually. Mm. Um, one of the things that I really noticed when I was in college um, was that, you know, during that time, that was the early 2000s. And during that time, um, we were doing a lot of organizing around the living wage, and we were doing a lot of organizing around marriage equality and affirmative action, um, and eventually around war, right, around um, mm. anti-war stuff. Yeah. And um, one of the things that I noticed in doing my activism was that, um, and I also at the same time became the editor of a kind of um, you know, a student magazine okay. um, that was covering these kind of topics. And one of the things that I noticed was that people um, would develop their understandings about the problems that were facing us, um, that are facing us. And um, they would sort of learn what they felt their positions were, and they would learn the sources that they trusted. Mm. Um, and then um, they would you know, take action, right? And right. be sort of in community around these these topics, which I think is really good. But at the same time, there was less of a value placed on being understood by a wider population. And I thought that there was a disconnect there. 
Um, and I thought, well, it's not only about developing understanding of the problems that we face, which is very important. And it's also not only about taking action, which is crucial, but it is also about how is it that we create a broader understanding about these issues that, um, you know, impact all of our lives? And indeed, how do we communicate how these issues impact all of our lives and how it, um, you know, sort of um, influences or shapes who we think we are in the world, who we think the we is, right? Um, and, yeah. um, you know, what kinds of lives uh, we think are possible and what kinds of communities we want to be. Mm. Um, and all of those things are based on, um, you know, public meaning, what people understand to be the problems we face, who they think ought to be held accountable for those problems, what they think um, they need to do in the face of those problems and what possibilities, right. They think are before them. And that is, um, that question of possibility is one that I'm really interested in and focused on um, because I really um, believe that what we get done is um, importantly circumscribed or limited by what we think we can get done. Yes. And one of the things that um, frustrates me a lot in political conversations, both inside the academy and in you know the world at large, is when people kind of throw up their hands and say it is what it is. Um, because, you know, I think that that is, um, you know, that is a self-limitation, right? right? Um, that we don't have to uh, accept, right? Instead, I think the right question is, um, what do we want, right? What do we want and how do we get from here to there? Um, and that set of questions, right, is one that requires imagination, um, that is tempered by practicality, right, and pragmatism, but one that absolutely posits, right, that we can achieve a world in which more people are living and thriving and able to relate to each other um, and able to make their lives possible, right? Materially possible. Yes. Um, and if that is our goal, then the question, then we can't sort of throw our hands up and say, eh, it is what it is, right? Or this is human nature. Another one that's a huge pet peeve of mine. Um, but instead <laughs> um, we have to talk about, okay, so if we want this world in which everyone has access to healthcare, in which everyone is able to, um, you know, have a voice in shaping how their community runs and functions, mm. um, in which, you know, children are well cared for and parents are supported. Um, and um, those who are not in nuclear families are able to live in communities of their own design and choosing. Mm. If we want to live in a world in which um, our economic uh, engines do not rely on the devastation of the environment if we want to live in a world that is not fundamentally characterized by, you know, um, white supremacy and racial discrimination. If we want those things, then the question is, how do we get from here to there? Yeah. And it's a long process, right? It's not right. something that takes place overnight, but it absolutely starts with, um, you know, ha having discussions about shared meaning, mm about what goals we may have in common um, and really understanding where we diverge. Right. Right. Um, right. But also not um, assuming um, that those cleavages are always insurmountable um, or assuming that we're doing the, the best that humanity can do at this moment, which I think is manifestly untrue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
so much there that I love um, immediately uh, as you're talking. Uh, that's what I feel like even I want to try and accomplish with my uh, podcast to fasten on one part where you're talking about educating on deeper levels so that we can talk about what the good life is and find mm -hmm. alternative solutions and shared action with people who come from what we would normally think of as very different sides of one issue, but we can agree on some completely unrelated issue that actually solves a lot of the problems. Mm -hmm. And so that really starts with us talking about what is, what is the good life? And that, like mm -hmm. you were talking about that possibility of what kinds of lives we think are possible. That's a crucial question. You, you had something mm -hmm. to say though, go ahead. Well, I think also in developing those deeper understandings through this kind of, um, you know, conversation is that we find um, that actually things that we think are unrelated are often not unrelated. Oh, no, yeah. No, that's what. <laughs> right. 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 Um, and that's part of what's so uh, amazing about engaging in this kind of um, conversation and political work. But I will say that it's not just, you know, it's not like people's preferences and personal failings that prevents these kinds of conversations from happening. Mm. Um, you know, I, um, you know, think that you know, part of the reason that we don't have civic discussions, and I'm saying civic and not civil on purpose, okay. right? Um, part of the reason that we're, we're not having civic discussions is because our political economy, right, our, our, our ways of supporting ourselves, our economic life is organized such that it takes up almost all of our time, right? So we don't have as much time and we don't have as many spaces where we can just simply get together with people, work with other people on shared sort of common local goals, right? Um, you know, many of us don't have time for that because we're working all the time and we have to work all the time in order to be barely able to support ourselves, yeah. right? So I think that political economy that has developed, right, of the always booked and busy, right, um, has really uh, prevented or uh, limited a lot of our chances um, for learning how to work together in a civic capacity. And that civic capacity is fundamental to democratic life. And as it starts to fall apart, of course, democratic politics, that is small d democratic politics, also begins to fall apart because we don't have experience working right. with one another. Yes, yes. And um Ooh, that's tough. There's so many ways, different places I want to go with that. But uh, I, so uh, just to kind of put it into the arena, even as we were talking about this, uh, something mm -hmm. that I uh, and I don't I don't want to romanticize it with words like subversion or rebellion, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. uh, but as I've looked at the values for our family and what's important, uh, we are starting a garden. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of that is to pull ourselves not completely because uh, we don't have the capacity for that right now, but to pull ourselves out of a lot of the supply system of mm -hmm. our, our current system, right? Uh, our current like capitalist system. And that's mm -hmm. not necessarily uh, even in, uh, I, I don't, the more I've studied economics, the less I feel I know. Uh, <laughs> like it's very complicated, but I yeah. do know that, uh, as of right now, I, I don't get a lot of choice when I go to the, the grocery store. Like, you know, it's all made mm. by about the same four companies when you talk about meat, that kind of thing. And mm. so looking at, uh, and this is why I taught like, uh, and so maybe this is what you were referring to. And I'm, uh, I just want to give a practical and particular example mm -hmm. that by gardening, 
uh, you give yourself direct access to the necessities of life mm-hmm. and you're able. And so if you, and that obviously uh, I understand that that requires that you have land to garden on, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a whole like that. Not everyone can do that. Um, and so just to kind of put that in as an example of uh, an alternative solution for like, Oh, I need to, I need to work 60 hours in order to make a living. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, if you have somewhere to live and you have food, then that actually, you might not have to work as much. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think that, well, that, you know, that may be true in certain places, depending on, you know, oftentimes gardening, especially at the beginning is actually pretty expensive. Right. <laughs> but- no, no, exactly. No, no, no. <laughs> the initial, but, the initial, the initial uh, yeah. investment. Um, yes. Yeah. And I'm a, I love gardening. Yes. So I'm a, I'm a huge gardener. I particularly love food gardening. I'm a food gardener more than a flower gardener, although um, I love both. But, um, but here's the thing that in my own community, sure. in my own life, that gardening opened up for us. And this is particularly um, during the first part of the pandemic, right? So this is spring 2020, right? Yeah. Um, which is when I really started gardening in earnest. Before that, I had a few things in pots, you know. Yeah. Um, but um, but it opened up the capacity for mutual aid, right? Because if you, um, you know, if you plant a garden um, and your garden is producing, it's not only that it feeds you and your family, you'll find actually that if it goes well, it produces too much to feed your family. Right. right? And so what we did as a community yes. um, during that time period, and I didn't lead this, right? I was just merely a participant. Um, um, you know, an, another more experienced gardener in our community was like, look, we have all this surplus. We can provide fresh organic food. Yeah to our community just by pooling our resources. Yes. And so that's what we did. Right. So, um, so, you know, and that is not only about providing for a particular need and taking care of your community, but it's also importantly, civically, it teaches people how to work together for a concrete goal that alleviates suffering, but also it teaches people to think about, oh, like this is, these are the kinds of capacities that are created by people working together. And then it gives people a different kind of framework for what they might expect, right? From governing institutions and decision makers, right? Um, who are supposed to have, right? Um, all this capacity to coordinate effort and, you know, activity. And it's really changed the character of how, you know, local government relates um, to, you know, folks, you know, who are, you know, citizens in the community. Now we have a small, you know, we're the smallest city in New York is where I live. So um, we're a small city. um, And so we have a, a you know, it's different on a small scale, but at the same time, this kind of engagement has empowered people to run for local office, right? Who have connections to these kinds of mutual aid activities that we were able to put together, um, who gained experience in doing things like once the mutual aid um, organization was set up to distribute food, they also were able to pull in local artists and create a outdoor um, childcare, basically, yeah. uh, program um, that had like an arts enrichment component because it happens to be an arty town. So parents who were working from home or who were out of work were able to come in and provide that service. So 
the whole point is all these good things happened, but also it made everyone civically engaged in a different way. Yeah. And also in a way where you don't have to be heroic, right? You're getting together with other people yeah. to do what you can, where you can, and you're also learning the capacity of collective action so that if you reach a point where some decision maker who has way more capacity, who collects taxes so they have way more money, right, right um, than you, and they say, oh, we can't do that, just don't know how it's going to be done. You can say, but we we already did this yeah, 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 yeah. with like nothing yes. so you can figure it out yes right and and furthermore we demand that you do and if you don't then one of us moms or dads yeah right yeah, 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 <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. Or, or other you know otherwise sort of affiliated persons is going to run and take your job and we'll do it yeah so yeah and you know and i even um uh, you you mentioned you know that that civic engagement i think it's a a big thing that i mean so obviously my context your context is new york uh my context mm-hmm. is central florida so, and what I love about this, so we're right on the border of Orange County and Lake County and mm-hmm. uh, Orange County tends to be more of a blue uh, county, you know, the Orlando, that area. And then you have Lake County, which is um, very, uh, uh, it's starting to become more suburban because of uh, Orlando, right. but it is, uh, tends to be uh, more red. And mm-hmm. the thing is, Everyone connects on both sides with something like gardening. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it reduces tensions. It gets people who are different to work together on something they agree with. Like in central mm-hmm. Florida, almost everyone will get behind something like gardening and everyone sees the benefit. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I, so I, I'm, I was really, I'm really pleased that that connected with you. That's something that you've done because it's, it, it's mm-hmm. a different way of approaching some of our problems and the, uh, I'm a big fan uh, when you talk about possibility and creativity for solutions of having these solutions that have multiple branching uh, outcomes that are great, which is what like the like the outdoor daycare. It's amazing. Like when you pull resources outside of some kind of governmental structure, how you can create these these powerful communities. And I think that's Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and remove kind of these binary oppositions because in a lot of ways we've we're just kind of stuck sometimes and stalemated at the political level um mm-hmm. so i yeah. yeah i don't uh i mean I, I do want to say that i i think that our political differences um are often real right yeah. like so i'm not actually a person who is like we need to like end polarization and just find things we agree on um you know sometimes our political differences are rooted in fundamental values differences right yes um you know and that's important right and we need to understand that um but sometimes they're not right um and um and sometimes um you know over time and over the process of working together, there are some people, right, who will come to understand, you know, in many different directions, right, yes. that their the their political activity actually doesn't accord with the values that they think that they have. Mm. Right. Um, but that is something, you know, um, that I think has to come from um, experience and the experience of, of working together. So, for example, um, I was teaching um, freshmen for the first time in a couple of years, you know, I'm a university, I work at university and, um, I had for the, a whole class of freshmen for the first time in like three years last year. <laughs> and, um, they're fantastic. I actually love freshmen, <laughs> um, but, um, so 
we are talking about civic participation. This class was actually about participation, yeah. right? And um, we're talking about different kinds of institutional forms that facilitate participation, what kinds of participation you can have in these different institutional forms. And um, and one of the um, students brings up um, unions and what unions are about. And one brave student asked was, was and this is one of the reasons I love freshmen too, is that they're they're often able to just be like, I don't know what that is. Yeah, like, yeah, I don't yeah, yeah. Know. Um, <laughs> you know. And one brave student was just like, I just don't know what they do. Right. Like, I know that they exist, and I know that some people that I like like them, but I don't know what they do. And so, you know, in this course, we were able to have time and space where I wasn't, um, you know, sort of lecturing to them about what unions are and what they do, although I did, of course, provide um, information to them, but that one of the students in the class was able to say, you know what, I've been working retail jobs since I was 16 or whatever. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And I, um, you know, my first retail job was at this company where um, they wouldn't give us a regular schedule. Um, they could change us up at any time. They could charge us for any items that were stolen while we were working. Um, that, yeah, like, um, I mean, I'm not surprised. They, I've heard these stories. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. That they could dock, um, you know, um, our pay, um, almost arbitrarily, right. Wage stuff, which is a huge problem. Um, and you know, and there was nothing we could do about it, right. There was nothing I could do about it, you know, um, as just this lone person who was subject to these, um, to these rules. Yeah. And she said, and then I quit that job. I couldn't take it anymore, um, you know, and um, now I'm working at another retail job, um, but this one is unionized. And at the unionized job, I work regular hours, um, guarantee the hours that I was promised when I was hired. They certainly can't charge me for theft that happens just while I'm on shift, yeah. right? And this person is telling this like story of this is the way it works yeah. in a way that enlightened the entire class. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, but from experience, yes. right. From lived experience, it wasn't like ideologically about, you know, um, particular things. It was very much like, let me just tell you the practical importance of the different experiences I had in these different situations. Yeah. And none of those students will forget that. Right. Right. Um, and so that way of communicating, that's what I mean by having time and space. Yes. People who are lucky enough to, um, you know, go to schools that are well-funded or go to university level schooling are able to have these spaces, yeah. right? Where they can just talk about these kinds of things. Right. But it's much harder in our regular lives. Yes. That kind of thing is usually organized out of our, um, you know, existence because we're trying to work those jobs, yes. right? Um, and 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 that is something that's really, really missing because, you know, people who may think that they're aligned on one side or the other of an issue like unions, because, yeah. you know, an opinion leader that they listen to has an opinion about it. Right. right. Would discover a different kind of relationship. Right. To that idea. If they were just able to talk to other people about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a really important point. And it's something I've felt a, a lot of, um, you know, you see these uh, expressions on social media about educate yourself. And mm -hmm. um, and I tried to. Right. But there's there's so many issues and there so many of them are important. And then you look mm -hmm. at uh, if you have kids, 
and you work mm-hmm. a full-time job and you run your household, the idea mm-hmm. that at the end of the day, you're going to pick up, uh, I'm going to have a uh, Dr. Lewis Gordon on, uh, to talk about his mm-hmm. book, fear, oh, yes. uh, talk about fear of black consciousness. Uh, he, mm-hmm. it's his book has just came out and I'm reading the book and I love it, but if I've had a long day with the kids, it's not like sure. it's not nine o'clock at night after trying to work with my four year old all day that I'm like, you know, I'm going to crack open this book on political philosophy. Like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it's difficult. Right. And you have to be very committed. And even then, though, sometimes you're just too tired. And so I just really appreciate that. Um, let me just and I wanted to say this because I, I want to make sure I didn't. Uh, I, I just want to clarify. I agree 100 percent on not eradicating difference. So when you talked about like, you know, I, I when I talked about working together to find solutions, like it's just not stale, like where we have stalemates, like I don't want to eradicate that because those are important differences. But there are places where we can work together. And sometimes and this is, I think, what you were mentioning, mm-hmm. it can shed new light on what we think are stalemates. Right. Some stalemates yes. are real mm-hmm. and some are not. But it's right. but we also have a lot of stuff that we could fix and that we're just not mm-hmm. talking about. So I wanted to say mm-hmm. I agree, I, and I feel like I mean I could be wrong, but I feel like I agree a hundred percent with what you said about that. Um, so I mm-hmm. wanted to make sure I clarified that. Um, yeah. You said something, and I, I'm <laughs> I do like it's amazing how people love uh, to talk about pet peeves. So you <laughs> mentioned you, you mentioned you don't like the term human nature. Yeah. Talk to me. Why don't you like the term human nature? Because I think it's another arbitrary limiting factor, right? You can say anything is human nature, right? Um, (laughs) You know what I mean? You can say like, it's human nature to love chocolate, right? And it's just like, actually, not everybody loves chocolate. Like that's, you know, and when you talk about more complicated things that have to do with behaviors, I think you're Mm. really in a situation where you're just, um, there's no way, first of all, to to verify that, right? And as an empirically based (laughs) person, I'm just like, you can't tell me that's true. Right. Yeah. Like, um, um, but I also think that it, it, it forms an ideological, like it, it does ideological work. Yeah. Um, that's just not warranted and it limits, um, what we think is possible. Right. If we think human nature is such and such a thing. Right. So this is another, another example from my class. Yeah. Um, but, um, so, you know, if you think that it is, Um, that no matter what the situation is, people are going to, um, you know, be self-interested and fight for, fight for, um, what they can get for themselves at the expense of anyone and everyone else. Right. Um, now of course we have a lot of anecdotes. We have our own impulses to say, oh, that's human nature. But of course we have a lot of anecdotes and we have a lot of personal examples where that's not the case. Right. right? And so there's some external factor that's mitigating that. But beyond, Mm. beyond that, right, which I think of as just empirically true, um, there's also what assumptions are at play when you say something is human nature. So in my class, I asked them the question, um, you know, we're talking about different ways to sort of um, organize economies, different ways to organize society. Um, and what do you think would happen, um, you know, if you're in a situation where, um, you know, everybody kind of needs the same things, um, um, 
and, but they're not allocated in an equal way, right? Um, and one of the students is like, well, I would definitely get what I could for me and my family, you know? Um, you know, and I don't, you know, I, that maybe that's bad, but I don't feel bad about that. And so then I asked them, well, what is the underlying assumption, right? Um, or what are the underlying assumptions yeah. in something like that? And another student in the class said that there's not enough, right? And And that is that was a moment of like another sort of like epiphany moment for the whole class. It's like that. Yes. Right. Yeah. Under conditions of scarcity, it makes total sense that you want to ensure your life yes. and the life of the people who are closest to you. Yes. Right. But that assumes, right. If we build a whole political system on that, it we're making the assumption that there's not enough forever and ever. Yeah. <laughs> right? right. And that there's no way that we can ensure that there's enough. Right. Um, and, if you work from that assumption, right, of course, then behaviors will, um, you know, react to the circumstances as they are, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm not a utopian, so I don't mean that, like, everyone will be able to have everything and everyone <laughs> will be happy and well forever and ever. Yeah. I don't mean that. I mean that if you start from the assumption that, you know, we have enough technology, we have enough people. Yeah. We have, um, you know, um, enough uh, space, right, in the world, right, that we can, um, you know, commit ourselves to figuring out um, how we can make everyone housed, mm -hmm. how we can make sure everyone has access to food, mm -hmm. how we can make sure that everyone has access to health care. Um, and that's just our baseline. We want to make sure there's enough of all of that. This is not the 18th century where it's like literally maybe impossible. Yeah. Right. 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 To do that. We are in we are in a space now. Right. Where it's it's not literally impossible to do that. The question is, how do we do it? Mm. Right. That should be the place that you start from. You know, so um, that's what I mean. We have to question the assumptions about what we think our limitations are, not because there are no limitations or because everything can be perfect, but because we can stop ourselves from doing what we actually can do by simply the limit of our imagination. Yeah. Uh, and that, I definitely feel that, um, you know, I mentioned, uh, I don't remember if it was before we started really recording, but uh, I've, the transition from being, uh, I used to be a, a teacher to uh, being a small business owner and realizing mm -hmm. how much I'd been taught, even as a kid, that you get a job, you get paid for your time. That's right. And not your value is in your work. And one of the mm -hmm. biggest things I had to switch was like, uh, and it's incredibly freeing and people just don't hear it and they don't see it because we're, we're taught like, go get a good job, those kind of things. And then mm -hmm. you see there's a whole mm -hmm. class of people who grew up with entrepreneurial parents who are taught like, it doesn't matter how long you work. What matters is that you get the job done done mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. uh that's it but we have these initial just trains of thought and if we don't start with uh deconstructing what that is at the beginning then you mm -hmm. like you, you're just kind of stuck like well i have to have this job because if i don't have this job how am i going to feed my family and there, yeah. there's a lot of different resources to and, and that's a the very small thing and that's a personal example right but communally mm -hmm. we can do these things too Right. I mean, we have to start asking questions about, okay, what actually is impossible and what is actually possible, right? right? I mean, that is is where we kind of begin. And you see this play out in large and small ways, yeah. right? I mean, you know, 
for me, I was just absolutely astonished. Um, for example, when um, the press secretary, Jen Psaki, right, of, of Biden administration's press secretary was asked, um, and this was, you know, now maybe a month ago, a month and a half ago, um, you know, what are you going to, you know, do to make tests and masks like available to, you know, more people? And um, the press secretary, Terry, laughed and said, what do you want us to send them to for free to every American? <laughs> right. And um, and, you know, it's something. It, <laughs> <I was, laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> OK, but. Beyond well, we can do the vaccines the, for free. Right. I mean, okay. it, just, Sorry, it was ahead. just it was like this is a failure yeah. of, you know, this is absolutely stopping yourself from imagining what is possible. Right. And that's not even it's not even a far imagination. No. Right? Other countries do this like it's completely within the purview yeah. right, of a government to do this. Right. But the idea that, no, we can't send, you know, we can't send things to care for people people to them for free because somehow that contravenes the American way. Right. Um, you know, that that's, that's a limitation yeah. um, that doesn't have to be there. And it starts with absolutely having the wrong assumptions and asking the wrong questions. And um, you know, the good news, I think, I hope is that people um, are beginning not to accept that kind of limitation and particularly people who organizing social movements, mm. right? And that's what social movements um, are about, yeah. right? Um, you know, they're about people not accepting the limitation of whatever the social moray is, what the law is, right, at the moment, what the government says that it can do, will do, should do, and will provide. And it's um, people who are getting together and saying, actually, according to our experience and according to what we have discovered, right, because that's the other thing that people don't recognize is that social movements are very well studied, actually, hmm. um, um, most of the time. Yeah. Right? Like a, a huge part of being in movement is like gathering information and facts yeah. <laughs> yeah. about, <laughs> about um, what the issue is. Um, and um, those people getting together and saying, actually, we have alternatives and we have to pursue those alternatives. Right. Um because otherwise, I'm not going to be able to live a an equal, dignified, free, thriving life. Yeah. Right. Um, and um, neither are all of these other people. And maybe neither are you. Right. Right. Um, right. Um, because it turns out that these struggles are very much connected. Right. Um, struggles for racial justice, struggles for housing affordability, struggles for environmental protection, struggles um, among the work, you know, for the working class. All of these struggles are connected. Yeah. Right. And it is about um, people um, getting together, um, educating themselves and each other, learning together. Right. Um, how it is we can solve these problems, what we have to demand, what we have to dismantle, what we have to rebuild in order to make thriving lives possible. So as we think about that. Uh, I'd like to we've talked quite a bit about participation and we I think we've mentioned a little bit about public meaning. But how do you shape public meaning to create more possibilities? Yeah, I mean, this is the thing that social movements that last do. Um, and it's not easy. Right. Like, that's the other thing is that, um, you know, shaping public meaning is about um, combining um, 
values, right? Old ideas that people already have mm. um, through people's understanding of the world as it is with new purposes, right? That present a vision of the world as it could be, right? Or should be. Okay. So it's a kind of a three-step process. You start where people are, you bring them through the kind of story and evidence of lived experience and say, it's actually possible to do things a different way. Right. Um, and when social movements are able to do that, and I call that making resonant arguments, when social movements are able mm. to make these resonant arguments over time, what they do is they change the baseline of how people evaluate certain problems. Right. Um, some people talk about this as shifting the Overton window, although that's usually among elites, um, you know, in, in decision making sessions like legislatures, et cetera. Um, what I talk about is among the whole population. Right? right. It's the shift from the notion of same sex marriage to the notion of marriage equality. Right. Is a change in public meaning. Right. Um, it is a shift in, um, you know, thinking you know, that unions are on the way out and the living wage is a nice idea, but it would never work um, to a resurgence in organizing for unions and people understanding that um, actually um, workers deserve to have a dignified um, life where they're able to um, set the terms <laughs> on which their labor will be, you know, yeah. um, um, utilized, right? Um, and the ways that they are, are able to determine their own value, right? Um, that is a shift in kind of public meaning, right? What it means um, to evaluate these political problems. In the case of racial justice, it is a shift, right? Um, in thinking through um, discrimination as an individual, interpersonal, feelings-based enterprise and thinking about instead the notion of systemic and institutional racism, right? Um, how racist impacts and discriminatory impacts um, are not just about, you know, mean people doing mean things, but is instead about the rules, um, laws, and institutional practices that keep um you know, um, people of color, especially black and indigenous people from being able to live thriving lives. Right. Um, and so, you know, all of these things are shifts in the baseline way that many people, right. Most people understand an issue. And it's really important to understand that shifts in public meaning don't mean that everyone's in agreement. Right. Right. Um, about these issues, like, um, you know, democracy is hard, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's, everybody's not going to be in agreement, but it is a shift in the baseline um, understandability, right? Intelligibility, right? Of what the dimensions of a problem are. And when we understand a problem differently, yeah. the solutions that we consider will also be different. Yes. Right. Yeah. And that's why shifts in public meaning are so important. And that's why that's some of the most fundamental work that social movements do. Now, this shift, these kinds of shifts in public meaning do not have a one to one correspondence with policy wins. Right. Right. Um, um, especially as these meetings are being introduced. Um, what I found in my work on marriage equality and living wage the living wage movement was that um, actually there's a there's a period of backlash, right? Right. <laughs> Which we are also experiencing in terms of racial justice movements right now. Yeah. Um, that happens after the idea is introduced or the set of ideas are introduced and gain salience. There is a pushback, 
right? There's a political pushback, a regressive push that wants to maintain the status quo, whatever it is. And those regressive pushes are often quite successful in the moment. But if movements are able to remain organized and are able to continue with their resonant messaging, um, it's and um, the opposition forces are not able to completely control the information environment, right, um, and also the material environment, then um, there is a chance for those public meetings to be overcome, right? Mm-hmm. And we did see this happen, for example, in the marriage equality movement. Um, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, that that movement organized as such in 1993. Um, and in 2004, um, of course, Democrats lost the presidential election and there was a huge slew, right, of, of all this blame. Like, like it, it was the gay people's fault trying to allow them. To, it was absolutely them. We need to stop talking about those issues, right? Like, I don't know if you remember this discourse, but it was, I mean, it's there, right, in the public record. I was um, 16, so... You were yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind <laughs> of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that yeah. is what happened, yes. right? I yeah, was in- I'm, I'm tracking with you, yeah. Yes. Um, I was in, I think, graduate school at the time. Yeah. So um, and so I absolutely remember those those conversations happening yeah. and it became like this mainstream talking point that it was absolutely the gays. Yes. Like they were the reason. Yeah. Um, you know, um, and Democrats need to stop messing with them because they're just going to continue to lose. Right. Yeah. Um, of course, that movement remained mobilized, even though it was demoralized, fractious. Um, it wasn't an easy time. Right. right. But of course, then within four years, public opinion completely shifted on that issue. Right. right. Um, now, it, it didn't happen sort of inevitably. It happened because those same resonant arguments about what was at stake yeah. right, in that debate. Yeah right kept being made yeah and the counter arguments came to seem less and less credible they were also less unified right than the 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 arguments for um and um and the counter arguments also um came to and i think this is really important did not match up with people's experience of the world right, right. Um, um, in a way that helped people make sense of the world. Yes. Most people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, not all people. Oh, oh wait, <laughs> but all, most people. It's never I'm, all I'm people. Always, that's right. Yeah. I'm always dealing with majorities. I'm never saying all people. Right. right. Um, and, and that really matters. Yeah. Right. So uh, now as we're dealing with a really severe backlash um, to the Black Lives Matter movement, um, to the idea which had, you know, just gained salience, um, at least in mainstream politics of systemic racism. Right. Um, you know, that's what the sort of critical race theory backlash is all about. It's it's a counter argument to the notion of systemic racism, which had finally gotten some traction, mm. really. Um, and, um, you know, we're in the midst of very, a very severe backlash where, um, you know, um, many states have moved to um, to outlaw the, the teaching of critical race theory, what ever they think that is, but that's also expanded to um, pulling books from that are just by black authors off library shelves, Mm. Um, you know, and, um, you know, same with the notion in sort of policing, right? We have this media narrative about a crime wave that is actually empirically not happening. um, And also might, um, we'll we'll talk about that, right? (laughs) Uh, But uh, no, that's a, that's a whole, that's a whole point that I also want to talk about. But anyway, um, all of this, um, 
you know, and people are yeah. responding to that um, with the notion that actually police need more money, more authority, more right. And and that um, the notion of, uh, you know, defund is sort of dead on arrival. Right. Um, you know, et cetera. So, you know, we're experiencing a similar kind of backlash now. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, that we have seen before with other successful movements. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, with marriage equality, 33 states pay, pass constitutional amendments to ban same-sex marriage, (laughs) right? Um, You know, so, you know, this is always a struggle, right? It's always a contest and there are steps forward and steps back. The question is, for me, how are public meanings being shaped? What kinds of new ways are people thinking about issues and problems? So, for example, um, one of my favorite examples of this is with the notion of defunding the police, right? Like, so any kind of mainstream pundit will tell you that's a horrible idea. It's a horrible slogan. Why are they saying that? Right. You know, et cetera. Um, And they're wrong for a number of different reasons. (laughs) One, um, they're wrong. Um, um, on the merits, right? American policing institutions have more money um, than any other kinds of policing institutions in the world. They have more money than any of our other public services, which also means that policing institutions are overburdened in terms of what it is they're expected to do, Mm. right? Um, You know, um, and, you know, people who are involved in law enforcement will also tell you this, like, I'm expected to be a social worker and I'm expected to alleviate poverty and I'm expected to stop armed criminals and I'm expected to deal with mental health crises, right? Like, um, and the reason that they're expected to do all that is because we've dumped almost all of our discretionary money into policing. Right. We're not paying teachers very much. No. But we have people in Missouri <laughs> buying tanks. You know, right. <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Right. Like, so, you know, it 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 focuses all the resources toward one institution that cannot do all these jobs. Right. Yeah. Um, and should not be expected to do all of these jobs. Yeah. Right. Instead, we need to invest in the things that can actually do these jobs. Right. Right. Um, so so one on the merits, they're wrong. But two, in terms of messaging, they're also wrong. Um, because one of the things that social movements do is they bring into focus ideas that are currently outside what we think is possible. Right. Right. Um, and if they do so successfully, those ideas linger in the public consciousness, even if they linger um, as objects uh, that people are objecting to. Right. So um, this notion that, um, you know, defund is the wrong slogan. Um, what we should really say is, um, you know, refund communities or defund is the wrong slogan. What we should really say is retrain. Right. Um, what we should really say is reinvest in education and housing and right, et cetera. People don't understand that while we're having that conversation. It's already working. It. Yeah, it's already working. That's the money. That's yes. The, Because even as, and it's really frustrating, right? Even as municipalities dump more money into policing, right, at this moment, people are beginning to understand, actually, there are all these things that we're not investing in that I want us to be investing in. And we actually have the option and opportunity to do that. And in localities, right, it's already happening, right? Defunding is not necessarily happening yet, right? Yeah. Um, at least not in significant ways. But it's already happening that municipalities are trying to invest in other ways 
to ensure safety, right, um, where they are and imagining different possibilities for their discretionary funds. And it's also happening that when the question is put to the public, for example, in referenda, right, um, and such, right, and some of those referenda were on the ballot in 2020 in 2020, people are choosing not to increase funding to their police departments and instead to put money into other kinds of things. Mm. And the people who choose that are not necessarily wearing a banner, right, that yeah. says defund police. Yeah. It's just an assessment about, um, do I think that this organization needs more money? They seemed really well-resourced or do I want to have more in terms of investing in parks, affordable housing, mm-hmm. food, Right. Like, et cetera. Right. right. So um, anyway, so so that's so having the conversation over time, mm-hmm. right, in a way that is, you know, organized um, by organizers and advocates who understand um, what is at stake and what their message is, is something that shapes public meaning over time and makes new things politically possible. But it's not overnight. Right. It's not from one election cycle to another. You usually have to look, I found over a decade, right, yeah. to see how um, public meaning changes. Uh, because, um, you know, the way that people think about their lives and what's possible and how the world is takes time to shift. Um, you know, and, and, and you're not guaranteed the outcome that you want, of course, <laughs> but it's important yeah. to understand how the process works. And uh, so I think if there's one thing that people would take away from this, and uh, it's part of the reason I, I wanted to do this podcast, and I keep bringing that up, but it's why I, I wanted to have you on, and I'm, I'm excited about this, is that slogans in many ways are more like keys than platforms. Mm-hmm. And I think where people mm-hmm. get frustrated is they see, like, defund the police, it's like, no money for the police. And there are some people mm-hmm. say just completely abolish it, but that doesn't, yeah. it's not what it is. Mm-hmm. It's a discussion. Defund the police is a mm-hmm. discussion, and that... Like like you said, it's about creating that dis- discussion. It's like, well, not defund, it's uh, refund this. And it's like, well, that's all part of what we're doing, which is why you even um, you said that it's not, you're not necessarily going to get the results that you want, you know, like maybe the exact results, but you might get some of the results. Uh, and sometimes that might be because you're wrong. You have, there's a There's a better solution over here, if that makes sense. You know, where people yeah, like no, talk probably. through that discussion. Uh, when I say you there, I mean generally you, not like. <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> like, like yeah. Uh, obviously you're wrong, Dr. Willie. No, uh, that was <laughs> where I was going with that. Um, so, you know, it's funny. Uh, you mentioned earlier and we were, we were talking about uh, how racism isn't just about mean people being mean. And uh, no. the example that I, I thought of immediately is uh, racism movies. Uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times people are like, oh, I watch this movie, you know, racism is bad. And it, it does. Uh, it's good to get people thinking about that and to give these illustrations of courage. But it often is like, oh, just racist. Uh, racism is like mean people doing mean things. And in some ways it yeah. shuts. And I think this is an important part of all this uh, public meaning shaping mm-hmm. is that it just shuts down the conversation. Cause it's like, well, don't be a mean person and don't do mean things. And that's yeah. like, that's not what, that's not what we're that's really talking about here. No. I mean, obviously you don't <laughs> want those things, right? Like, <laughs> But that's, be, that's already becoming increasingly unpopular without solving many of the uh, actual outstanding issues. 
Yeah. Um, well, and that's partly why discussion about systemic um, issues yes. um, is really important. This is one thing that's really important, generally speaking, in American society is um, how is it that we have public conversations that help people think structurally and yes. systemically? Right. Um, you know, you know, one of the things about the American sort of version of individualism, um, particularly when we're thinking about politics, mm -hmm. is that we've come to think that it's all about individual interactions with other individuals or um, that individuals inherently know what their interest, right? This notion of interest, right? right? They inherently know what their interest is and are going to like automatically fight for that, right? In coalition with other people who share their interests yes. that they inherently know. Um, and that's not actually how the world works, right? Um, all of our lives, you know, we make individual choices. Um, some of them are better and some of them are worse. But the fact is that we all live under conditions that are not of our own making, right? We are born into a world that already exists. Yes. <laughs> and we <laughs> have to I work. Checked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like it's not made new yeah. just because we kind of walk into it, yeah. even though we are irreducible snowflakes, each and every one of us. And I mean that in the best possible way. Right. Like, okay. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. you know, the world exists. And so the fact is that when we're thinking about change, right, social change, political change on a large or small scale, yeah. we have to understand that the thing that we want to change is not only our own behavior, mm -hmm. right? Not even primarily our own behavior. Mm -hmm. It is really about, um, you know, how is it that we can shift the conditions of our lives, yeah. right? All of our lives mm -hmm. in such a way that um, we can you know, limit, right, um, diminish um, discrimination, limit and diminish inhumanity, limit and diminish the suffering that people undergo, right? And all of that is not going to be only about our own, like, mindfulness and yoga practice and therapy, although, yes, to all of those things. It is about how do we have access to institutions that are able to and see it as their mission to provide for our collective needs, hmm. Right. Um, and it's and so thinking about um, systems and structures is one of, I think, the key things um, that we can do civically. Right. To come to understand the scope of the problems that we face and the scope of the solutions that are necessary. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I see this, you know, particularly in the case of environmental, um, you know, issues. Right. The scope of the problem that we face um, you know, in terms of um, the possibility of this planet being habitable for human beings, most human beings um, in the next hundred years um, is not something that is going to be solved by um, making sure that we put our own individual things in recycling bins. Right. Like that's not that's not answering the scope of the question. Right. And so when we talk about those issues, Thinking about things systemically and structurally um, is is really the first step um, to trying to meet the challenges of the 21st century. Well said. Absolutely appreciate that. Um, one of the things, you know, for me, questions of race uh, didn't even really pop up on my radar because I lived for a long time, uh, nine years, an hour and a half north of Green Bay, Wisconsin. Okay. So we, I, we were at a college that I knew, I knew 
for black people the entirety of my time there because it's just predominantly white. Uh, mm -hmm. And so even as you're talking about these issues, there's an enormous amount of misinformation. And one of the things we don't talk about, uh, I think enough, is that there are multiple modes of knowing. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about, for instance, like a, a lot of stuff that I was just confused at why the conversation was going the way it was going when I would hear about politics and stuff like that made tremendously like made way more sense once I moved to Chicago. Like mm -hmm. I was like, oh, okay, now like <laughs> this makes way mm -hmm. more sense. Whereas like the issues that someone's facing in rural Wisconsin, in rural Upper Peninsula, uh, Michigan, is very different, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, just kind of even going back to, you know, we were talking about gardening, we were talking about these social movements, wh whatever it is, where you're working mm -hmm. together and you just like rub shoulders with and work with different people is just very important. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, that kind of leads me into, you know, I want to be respectful of your time. We're, we're drawn to a close here. How mm -hmm. do you create resonance? So resonant arguments. And I think that's, you know, um, just a really essential and important part of this because there is an enormous amount of misinformation. And a lot of people don't even realize uh, what their interests are. Right. Mm -hmm. So how do yes. you create resonance? Well, okay, so um, the process for creating a resonant argument is actually that three-step process I talked okay. about before, is one, um, old ideas, right? Things sure. that people, values that people already hold. That's meeting people where they are. Organizers also talk about that, yeah. right? Um, and connecting them to new purposes, right, through people's experience, right? Okay. So people's lived experience. So it's a sort of three-pronged thing. Um, so... This is one of the reasons that resonant arguments are very rarely um, purely ideological arguments, yeah. right? And when I say that, I don't, um, what I mean is speaking from inside of an ideology that is not commonly well known, right? Or that is massively stereotyped for whatever reason, right? Is not one that's going to usually create a resonant argument, even if the sort of um, basis of the argument is correct or true, right? Um, you know, uh, in some capacity. Instead, it really is about starting where people are, right? Um, and figuring out how to... Um, you know, um, articulate a problem, right, in such a way that people acknowledge it as a problem because they've they've experienced it in their own lives. Yeah. And then offering a set of solutions, right, or a way of looking at things that helps people to understand that those solutions, um, that way of looking at the problem actually can, um, you know, help to solve it, right, in a way that comports with uh, the values that they already hold. Right. Um, and so, for example, this is what happened with um, the marriage equality movement, um, because people, you know, in, in and I wrote about a book about this, but also articles. But, um, you know, people, a, a majority of people, because of social mores, um, because of their religious commitments, um, or at least the way they understood their religious commitments at the time, um, you know, had a an idea that with the issue of same-sex marriage, what was at stake was whether or not um, they personally, um, you know, found um, same, like sex, right? Same sex, right? Um, you know, uh, appealing or not, right? <laughs> um, and, 
you know, that sort of framing or that way of thinking about things, um, or they thought that there was a mandate um, from their, um, you know, religious affiliation um, that they had to condemn, um, you know, um, you know, these, again, sexual acts. So it was about sex, basically. Right. Um, and so um, what happened in the sort of reframing of that debate is that, um, you know, what activists said is like, this is not about sex. This is about family and this is about love. And this is about um, the rights to the resources that we need to live in loving community. Right. Like yeah. that is what is at stake. Not about however you feel about kind of sex that we're having or however I feel about the kind of sex you're having. Right. Like, um, so um, um, that was an argument. And the, the way that people were able to do that is to say, you already value um, this notion of equality. Mm -hmm. You already value the notion of love and a loving family. And let me tell you how this issue is about those things that you already value. Mm -hmm. And that if you value those things, then you ought to value the access to this institution. And, you know, there's a really weird moment in public opinion polling where you have the majority of people uh, both against same-sex sexual acts and for marriage equality. Yeah. Right. So it's because the decision rule for what was at stake. Right. In that debate changed. Yeah. The decision about whether or not I support this wasn't based on how I feel about your sex. Yeah. Right. It which was is about a weird thing, whether, which is a weird thing to be right. concerned about. Right. It, it's, <laughs> it's very it's, <laughs> you know, but people were, hey, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but okay, so now this is a limited example, yeah. right? You know, and people will sort of like tell you that it's like this is a very, um, you know, th this wasn't an example that required the change, the fundamental, the changing of the fundamental structures of society mm. in the way that a reorganization of the labor market would, in a way that the um, mm. defeat, right, of um, you know white supremacy would. Um, you know, this is a much more sort of limited case in that it only required. Um, you know, inclusion in institutions that already existed, right? It didn't require a kind of restructuring of those. And that's true, right? That's a fair critique. And yet at the same time, we can see how people's minds changed on this issue, which nevertheless seemed very out of um, the ordinary, mm. seemed at first when it was introduced, um, sort of definitionally absurd. That was one of the most uh, frequent arguments against marriage equality is that it didn't make sense. Mm. Right. Like, I, I just don't even know. It's not even marriage. Right. If it's, it's right. Um, so, you know, people really had to get their minds around something that for them was totally outside the box. Yeah. Right. Um, so that means that when you're asking people to get their minds around something that is totally outside the book box and requires the restructuring society, that's an even longer fight. But I think it proceeds in the same way, mm. right? Is that people learn that what's at stake in the issue is something different than they originally thought. And so then they start to make different policy choices, right? Even if they haven't yet, or they never, right, changed their mind about whatever kind of values commitment they had, right, in the beginning that was inhibiting them um, from supporting. So this is also you know, another lesson in terms of defund, right? Even people who would not necessarily say, like, carry this banner of defund the police or who are not abolitionists and who would never, you know, have an ACAB sticker on their car or whatever, mm -hmm. um, they still might think 
actually, it's a bad idea to spend 50% of our discretionary budget on the police department. Yeah. Yeah. Right. What's at stake in that argument is different. Right. Um, and when you change that baseline through the use of resonant arguments, then you make things politically possible that weren't politically possible before. Yeah. Um, and that is, for me, that is the heart of social change. And the kind of social change that that I'm talking about um, doesn't have to be reformist social change. It can also be large scale or revolutionary social change in the broad sense of the restructuring of society. Um, not necessarily the sense of war, right? When you're in, in, a, if, in a war situation, it's everything is different, right? Um, but, um, but you know, this process works whether you're on a lar- large scale or a small scale, whether your goals are reformist or whether they are radical. The question is, is the way that you're describing things helping people make sense of the world, mm. right, in a different way? Yeah. Right. And one of the reasons for the huge upheaval that we're having right now is that the sort of things that we have been told, you know, even in your example of the small business and working job, et cetera, the things that we have been told about how to organize our lives. Yes. Right. That may have served in the 20th century no longer help us make sense of our lives. Right. And so people are reaching for all these different explanations. Yeah. And some are radical and progressive and some are fascist and regressive and some is just confusion. Yeah. Right. But it's because there isn't this correspondence of do the ideas that are circulating right in public, the things that we are told are baseline common sense, do those things actually help us make sense of the conditions in our lives? And often the answer is no. Mm -hmm. So the project of the 21st century is how do we create a correspondence right between the ideas that we hold about how we ought to organize our lives and society, right? in the material conditions that we face in society. And that is what movements are trying to help us do right now. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, and I'd like to, I'd love to do like a, a clarifying, um, just to restate kind of what you're talking about. I grew up fundamentalist Christian. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I grew up with a lot of debates about whether women should be able to wear pants, whether mm-hmm. rock music was of the devil Okay, mm-hmm. so there were there was a lot more argument, I think, than in the in a in my community than in normal communities because people were trying to make sense of their lives in in mm-hmm. regards to like these kind of things. Um, but what I found especially persuasive, and I'm wondering if this fits in with what you're saying, is that when someone did resist an idea, the important thing wasn't to even bowl them over with arguments. Though ultimately, like you are talking about argu- uh, arguments, but the, the rhetorical strategy I often found most effective was find what they are protecting mm-hmm. and show them how what you're describing actually is a better example of what they're protecting. Is that fitting what yes. you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So if what people are concerned about is safety, yeah. then show people how dumping all of our discretionary funds into policing does not create safety and actually having green space and housing and adequate food. That's what creates safety. Right. Right. Um, I think that's an absolutely wonderful way of putting it is that when people are fighting so hard for a particular idea, it's often because they are protecting something. Yeah. Right. And so if you can show them a way to preserve or protect or improve that thing, yeah, right, um, 
you know, then you can find common ground. But this is also with the caveat that if what they're protecting is truly despicable, yes, <laughs> then there is no common ground. Yes. And you have to right. just that's the know, polarizing. To, that's that's a stalemate. But what I found specifically because I uh, literally went to this college, it was fundamentalist, went to being evangelical in the nine years we were there. So everything mm-hmm. changed. Literally people like and you, it's a college. It's an academic setting. So you have students in the dorm talking till two in the morning every night yeah. about theology. So this is like this is wow. why I do this now because <laughs> I like it. Right. It's like this. Yeah. Is, um, and so uh, what I found was if you can isolate what people what individual people are protecting, the mm-hmm. people who are despicable uh, in what they're protecting tend to be quite the minority. Mm-hmm. But they but it seems like they have common ground with a lot of people, but they actually don't. Right. And so that's why it's very important to find out what is mm-hmm. like, you know, so, um, you know, uh, well, we don't need to get into specific examples from there because a lot of it's just weird right. and nobody cares. But <laughs> honestly, but like with but, things like, you know, when someone's like, well, no, I actually just don't like black people. Like most people are like, mm-hmm. what? No, no. You know what I mean? Like that, mm-hmm. that like you start to isolate the people who are problematic. If it, mm-hmm. does that make sense? No, yeah. I, I think that that's I think that that's true. I mean, I in the in the sense that I think that you absolutely have to figure out what it is you're disagreeing about with people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, um, so if you know if what you're disagreeing about is the idea that actually there are some humans that are just better than other humans, and yes. everything about our society should reflect that, well, that's a dis- that's a fundamental <laughs> yeah, disagreement, right. and we have no common ground. Um, you know. If it is something else, right, then what we have is something that we need to talk through and about, which doesn't mean that we'll agree in the end, but it does mean that we can be a part of the same conversation. So I absolutely agree with you. And I also want to lift up this tradition of civitas that you talked about, right? Like this notion that you got, I mean, and that's why college is is special, right? Like, is that like you guys had the time and space to discuss and debate ideas. Yes. And in the discussing and debating of those ideas, there's also community that's created, right? right? Um, This is also another reason to get the political economy under control, because just giving people time and space to discuss ideas and work together. And, you know, this is why also reinvesting in the public and public spaces, right, is also important, Mm. because those spaces where people can kind of get together and you know, whatever, play chess yeah. or, um, you know, um, uh, whatever they're doing and just talk. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Just like to like those are really, really important spaces yeah. um, for nurturing the capacity uh, for democratic politics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you so much for your time. If you could leave one thing to our audience, what would it be? I would say um, find a way to um, get involved locally, right? I would say that one of the most important things that we can do, um, in addition to, you know, everything that you say about like educate yourself, right, et cetera, we actually have better education in community. And so to get Mm. involved locally about something that you care about and to try to find ways of carrying that sort of forward, right, in your own local space and community and understanding how that local space and how that local set of fights, right, whatever they are, um, connect to a broader political story. Mm -hmm. For me, that's the most critical work 
of democracy right now is making those connections between the concrete and local and the larger in terms of national and even global. Uh, but I think that absolutely starts with understanding understanding what's going on where you are. Mm. Thank you, Dr. Woodley. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a pleasure too. Thank you. 